listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, you probably noticed that there's been a different person behind this pulpit every Sunday. Um, that's, we're, we're not in flux. There's nothing weird happening at Crosspoint, and we don't vote on who gets to preach every week. Brad Evangelista is our lead pastor, and uh, for the month of July, he is actually on sabbatical, uh, which is great for him. I think this is the first time in seven years that he has not been here for uh, more than two weeks in a row. So uh, we're, we're glad for him, and we're praying for him, uh, and I, I encourage you to continue to do that. Um, but as you know, Will preached a few weeks ago, uh, and Wayne preached last week. Both of them excellent, excellent sermons through, through psalms. And, and that's the series that we're currently in where we're just selecting uh, various psalms and preaching through them. And um, So I encourage you, if you haven't had a chance, to actually go online to our website or even to, if you're lucky enough, to find a copy of one of their sermons in the foyer and listen to it. it they're, they're very good and very gospel-centered, and in particular, um, one of the things I love about these psalms, about preaching through psalms, uh, is just there, and I I sent an email out last week and and alluded to this, the psalms are God's words, God's word to us, showing us how we ought to speak to him what our words are to him. And more than that, or I guess in addition to that, the words that, that we're called to speak to him are, they reflect different emotions than maybe we automatically have toward God. And so the Psalms tell our soul to, to, to run to God, to rejoice in him, and, and the Psalms command this. And, and yet maybe our hearts aren't, aren't always rejoicing or, or running toward him. And so the Psalms challenge our longings. They challenge our desires. Um, and, and so I encourage you this morning as we read through Psalm 84, which is our text, uh, to, um, to keep that in mind, that, that perhaps part of Psalm 84 might be a little hard to understand because maybe our own hearts aren't really inclined this way. And then likewise, let the word shape your heart and, and mold it and transform it. Uh, that, that's, that's the goal. That's what we want to do. So before, before I read the psalm, well, I'll tell you what, let me, let me introduce, let me introduce this just a little bit, actually. I, I said Wayne preached last week, and he actually preached through psalm, Psalms 42 and 43, originally just one psalm. And uh, the psalm itself is actually, it's, it starts very similarly uh, to the one we'll be reading this morning, Psalm 84. Uh, both psalms are written by this worship band of Israel called the Sons of Korah. Uh, and, and in both psalms, they begin with similar language. Psalm 42, the psalmist expresses a real deep, sincere, mournful state of his heart in which he is not in the Lord's presence. He, he's not in Jerusalem. He's actually very far away. And he longs to be in the Lord's presence. He, he compares it to being like a, like a deer out in the middle of, of, of the desert. It's a very dire circumstance he finds himself in. And, and Psalm 84 actually begins similarly. If Psalm 42 says, when shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 84, I just said God real weird. Psalm 84 begins on a similar note, almost using the same words. Uh, but instead of turning in mourning, sadness, the psalmist is able to be very joyful even in his absence from, from the temple, from Jerusalem, from Zion. So I want to look at that. That's, that's what I want to explore this morning. And it's not to pit Psalm 84 against Psalm 42 and to say that they're contradicting each other, or that one psalmist is in the right. It's the same guy. But, but in truth, our, our hearts have various responses. And, and in Psalm 42, his response is, is a godly one because it comes from a desire to be where the Lord is. And in this one, his response is also godly because it comes from a desire to be where the Lord is. And so I want to explore that. I want to look at that. 
So let's pray, and then we'll look at Psalm 84, and uh, we'll, we'll get going, all right? Let's pray. Father, uh, your, your courts are, are vastly superior to anything this world offers. And to be where you are is, is so much better than to be anywhere else. And so as we read Psalm 84, would you speak to our hearts? Would you, would you incline us to hear your voice? Would you invite us into your dwelling through Jesus? Would you welcome us as, 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 as welcome guests where you are? I pray that, that you would speak to believers here, you speak to those who, who don't know you. I ask that you would draw our attention to your word. And, and be gracious to us to do that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let me read Psalm 84, and I, you know, I wish I had actually looked ahead at the, the Bibles in the, in the chairs. Maybe if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't own a Bible, there, there are actually Bibles right at your feet, uh, oddly enough. So if you, if you look down there, you can, you can take that and look, through, look for Psalm 84. Psalms are they're right in the middle of the Bible, so you shouldn't have too much trouble. Uh, but also, for what it's worth, if you don't have a Bible, consider that one yours and, and take that with you as you go. Let's read Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, which is a musical term, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. As you can see, there are some similarities to Psalm 42 last week, um, but obviously there are some pretty key differences. Um, the psalmist expresses a very clear desire to be where the Lord is, to be at his dwelling place. So what is that? Well, the dwelling place of the Lord is commonly understood as the, uh, it's the temple, the sanctuary, Jerusalem. There, there's only one temple. It's constructed. It's been built. There's a physical place. It's in Jerusalem. Um, and so for the psalmist to say, I want to be where you dwell, I, I mean, we have to be careful not to be cynical here and read psalms and say, yeah, 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 that's poetic language. No, he really actually wants to go where, where the Lord is. I mean, that, that is his goal, and the Lord is at the temple. All right, so, so that's, where he, that's what he longs for. And, and the psalmist describes this place, he says it a few times, he calls it Zion. Uh, what, what's Zion? Well, it's... It's, it's, not anything, it's not less than Jerusalem, but it's, it's a lot more than Jerusalem. I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. It's, um, it's kind of like saying that you could be going to Washington, D.C., or you could be going to the capital. Well, the, Washington, D.C. is, it, sure, the, the capital is there, but you know, there's a lot more that goes along with Washington, D.C. When you talk about the capital, 
the capital, the place where government happens, or should, the place where, where, people, where people gather together as elected officials. There, there's, a different, there's a different connotation when I say the capital. Not the same place, but there's a different connotation, right? It's similar to that. Now, now Zion is, is vastly greater than the capital of the United States of America. Uh, but, but Zion is the king's city, not just the king of Israel, but, but it is like God, the king. And so Zion is often, uh, when, when poets and, and the prophets especially refer to this place, they're talking about God's actual glorious, magisterial throne city. It's, got, it's where God's presence is actually made known to his people, right? And, uh, and, and, and the beauty of Mount Zion is that this is also where God is made approachable. I don't want to get too far into this, but Mount Sinai is another mountain often referred to in Scripture. Mount Sinai is, is where God met Moses, but no one else was really able to, to go up that mountain or they would have died, Right? It's at Mount Sinai that God hands down the law. It's at Mount Sinai where God and Moses confer about a few things. But no one, no one other than Moses is allowed to, to actually approach God. Now, Mount Zion is different from Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is where you, you can approach God. It's where God's presence and, and, and earth's reality sort of meet, right? So this, this is where God is. Um, you notice that instead of being mournful, the psalmist is actually very joyful. Despite the fact that he can't be there, he's able to really rejoice in, in the blessedness of God's presence. Even if he can't actually be in it physically, he, 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 his mind is consumed by this thought that the presence of the Lord is so great. And, and, and he utters a few statements that, that will that'll make up the, the bulk of, of this message uh, where he refers to the blessedness of, of the Lord's presence. And, and that's what I want to look at. Uh, it's, it's my prayer for us this morning that uh, we would taste what this psalmist is expressing. If I can, I want to open your eyes um, to see what makes the dwelling place of the Lord so lovely, as he calls it. Uh, we'll look at the pilgrimage to get there, to get to the Lord's presence, and then We'll look at the nature of our relationship to God's presence, which ultimately and finally and perfectly is found by faith in Christ. Uh, the text contains three beatitudes, three blessed statements, like I was saying. And, uh, and so these statements describe the person or the state of the person who is truly happy, truly content, satisfied. Uh, and and that's, what, that's what we'll look at. So the first one is found in verse 4. Uh, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Verse 5 is, is the next. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And then finally, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Um, what's so interesting about these blessed statements, these beatitudes, uh, is that they, they start out right at, the, right at the temple, right where God actually is. Blessed is the one who dwells in your presence, Lord, singing your praise to you in your presence, right? But then the next one is blessed are those uh, who, uh, who, whose strength is in you and whose heart uh, are the highways to Zion. And so the next blessing goes to a guy who isn't, he's not actually at the temple, but yet they're still blessing. How? And then, and then finally, the final verse says, blessed are those who trust in you. Trust. He's not there. We don't really have any indication that he's even on his way to the temple, and yet something about the presence of the Lord is such a blessing that even, even not physically being there, you're able to receive that blessing by faith. So that's, that's the overarching view of, of what's happening here. All right, so there are three blessings. And the first is the blessing of dwelling in the Lord's presence. Uh, let's talk about the temple first. I, I talked about it just a little bit, but I want to give you a little bit more background. Uh, 
the temple very quickly. The, the Lord God, he, of all the people in the world, picks one guy named Abraham to be his, his guy, right? And he tells Abraham, he makes him a promise and says that I'll be your God and you and all your descendants will be my people. And, and what do a people need? Well, they need a place, right? And so the Lord tells Abraham, I'll give you a place. I'll, I'll set up a, a land for you to actually dwell in, all right? That, that promise takes a while to unfold because next thing you know, all of Abraham's descendants are not in the promised land. They're in another land called Egypt, and they're in slavery, right? Um, so they're, they're in Egypt, they're enslaved, but the Lord, he hears their cries, and, and he hears their pleas for mercy, and he hears of their suffering. And so he sends a guy named Moses, and Moses goes into the promised land, or excuse me, he goes into Egypt, takes God's people out of Egypt and has been told by God to take them to the promised land. That's, that's the goal. That's the plan. But until they get there, which takes several, several decades, until they get there, the Lord, he issues some laws that actually hold effect through, throughout their time as a people. He, he issues them some laws. And one of these laws, or a large portion of these laws, have to do with God's presence among them, how they're going to how they're going to coexist. The Lord, he tells Moses that he's going to set up a tent among his people. Now, the people of God, Israel, they're, they're nomadic at this time, which means they live in tents. They're on the move constantly. They're living in the wilderness. This is not their permanent place. But the Lord is gracious to his people. And, and he decides that he will make his presence known to them by living among them. And so he, he himself sets up what's called the tabernacle. And, and it's it's. It is a tent, and this is God's tent, and it's in the middle of the, the campsite, and it's like, it's like God is your neighbor right down the street. He is right there. He is in the midst of his people, all right? And then, and then as they go along through the history, it, they decide, Israel decides, once they enter the promised land, that it would be best for them if they were like the other nations and had themselves a king. There's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting a king. Their motives were probably a little, a little sketchy. But they ask God for a king, and, and God acquiesces to their request, and he gives them one named Saul. Saul is not a very good king. And, and what, what's worse is that he doesn't really respect the place of the Lord very much. He doesn't have a whole lot of respect for the people who are in the temple, who are in the tabernacle, I mean, who, who go between God and the people and, and bring offerings and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but then Israel gets another king, and, and this is King David. Right? And David is known as God's anointed, his Messiah, the one that he has sent to, to be his king over his people in, 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 his, uh, in his place. So, so David becomes king. And, and yet, one day, David wakes up one morning, he's drinking his coffee, he's reading the newspaper, and he looks down the street, looks out the window, and he notices that, and let me, let me be clear, he looks out the window of his awesome palace, his house, his, his brick and mortar with a roof over his head, house where he lives and he has servants who come and go and, and he is David and he has a palace, right? And he looks out his window down the street and he sees that the Lord's presence, his Ark of the Covenant, which is where his presence is, is, is shown uh, in a flame of fire. Uh, he looks down the street and he sees that God still lives in a tent and David, he loses his mind. He, uh, it's like he hadn't even realized it until then, just the great, the great incongruity of it all that, that that David lives in this house, and God himself lives in a tent. And David, he makes this statement to God, and he promises God, and he says, God, if you will let me, I'll build you a house. Which is, I mean, that's quite a statement. God, let me, let me build you a house. But David makes this offer to the Lord, and the Lord rejects it. He says, no, that's not necessary. I'm not going to actually do this. I will have a house one day. Don't, don't get me wrong. I've never asked you for one, though. And in fact, I'm actually going to build myself a temple through your son, Solomon. And Solomon, he becomes king. David waits. He doesn't do anything. He, he obeys the Lord. But Solomon becomes king, and he constructs the most beautiful building fitting for the Lord. And the temple is, is so great and magnificent. It, it's made with the finest materials. Uh, it's, it's got all sorts of great just detail work and, and all these little things that Oh, this is the place where the Lord is. Truly, this is the place. But even, even Solomon and all his wisdom and, and all the grandeur of, of, of 
of, of this temple. He even says in, in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8, 27, you don't have to turn there, but he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And Solomon wisely acknowledges that this temple is, is great, but really, ultimately, it's not, it's not fitting for God. God's too big. God's too great to be, to be contained in, in a temple, as magnificent as that temple was. He's too big. His presence is, is, is too marvelous. So it's not really the temple that, that the psalmist is concerned about. That's, not where he, that's really not where he wants to go. The only reason he loves the temple so much is because that's where the Lord is. That's where the Lord has been made manifest. It doesn't matter how glorious this temple is. The Lord is there. That's what he's concerned about. That's what he wants. So the, the real beauty of the temple is that the Lord himself is there. And we see this again and again. You should look at verse 2. He says, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Not, not to the place where he is. To the living God. This is who I want to see. In verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. He, he wants to praise God. Verse 7, he says, They go from strength to tr- strength. To strength, each one appears before God in Zion. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. The Lord is, he is the one who supplies all their blessing. He is the one who is more glorious than anyone can imagine. And he is the one that the psalmist wants to see. And it just so happens that there is a place he can go to find this. See, God's presence is not limited to space, and it's not, because of that, it's not, it's not definable. You can't define, well, where does God begin? Where does God end? There, there's, no, there's no limit. So his presence, when we talk about his presence, it's not quantifiable in that sense, but, but the presence of God, kind of like the effects of the wind, I don't know, the presence of God is shown by his nearness, and, and, and the effects of his being near. Most notably, and most frequently throughout Scripture, his presence to bless his people and to protect his people. And, and this is very clearly seen throughout this psalm. Therefore, to seek God's presence or to be in his presence is to submit yourself to his provision and his protection, the way, the way he defines it. That's, that's the essence of being in the presence of the Lord. And the psalmist, he describes what that feeling is like. He shows us what that's like. And he says that it's a joy to be in the presence of the Lord. It's a joy. Now, we, we, these statements, these blessed statements, I, I said this, and I want to say it again. To be blessed, that's a word that's really watered down for us, and it's not one that maybe we resonate with. I mean, how many times have you referred to something as blessed in your everyday conversation? Um, now, these pancakes were blessed. Uh, that doesn't really happen. The blessed, though, has a lot more to do with being truly content, truly happy. You look at the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and Jesus says, blessed are the so-and-so, blessed are the, these people. And, and, and he describes the, the attitude, the actions, the heart of a person who is truly satisfied. And so he says that, the psalmist says, you know, this person is blessed who is in the presence of the Lord. Well, well Why? He describes it as being a joyful experience, and he talks about singing for joy. He talks about ever singing your praise, and he, he just referred to birds who, well, that's what birds do, right? And, and if you can imagine the song of a bird, how much greater is the song of a person who intelligently knows the Lord in some capacity? The joy of being in the Lord's presence. This is what he describes it. And he also describes the Lord as a son, uh, the sun, what, what more joyful thing is there in the sky or in all of creation? If, if the sun is dark or, or at night or if it's a cloudy day, there's a reason why people get sad. But the Lord, he is a sun. He is the sun, and, and as he rises in his glory, we receive warmth and we receive the beauty of the world around us, and, and it's by him that we 
can enjoy this world and, and, and ultimately enjoy him. The, the presence of the Lord is also a refuge. Uh, he very clearly states this. He talks about the sparrow and the swallow, which is an image that I really love. My wife and I, we lived in an apartment uh, as recently as a few months ago, and one day we woke up to find a uh, Carolina wren setting up its nest in our mailbox. And, of course, uh, at first I thought I'd remove the, the pine straw because we need mail. But then, but then over time, this bird was really insistent, really persistent on this, and so she kept building her nest, and, and one day I, I just I felt bad to, to remove it. I mean, you could see where she had burrowed out a hole. It wasn't just straw in there anymore. There was very serious architectural design going on. And, uh, and, and then next thing we knew, there, were, there was one egg and then another egg, and before, before too long, there were about five or six eggs in there. And, of course, at that point, what, what can you do? I mean, you, I'm not going to be that guy. And... Uh, <laughs> All we could do was, def- was, was basically defend this poor bird and her, her young family. I don't, think there was a, I don't think there was a husband in the picture. So we, we stepped in and we spoke to the mailman, actually, and we said, look, hey, I know you've got a job to do, but listen, there is a family in that mailbox that we cannot destroy. And, and so could you work with us on this? And I think the mailman was okay with it for about a week, but then he quickly forgot. And I got to tell you, it's... A, as I, as I imagine it, it would be a very perilous thing to be a bird in a mailbox because, you know, a piece of paper easily three or four times your size being shoved into your room. I mean, can you imagine the panic that that must cause? And it smells like someone else, and it's just, how weird is that? How frightening is that? And yet this bird, just she stuck it out. She rode out the storm, and her, her baby birds were quickly hatched, and uh, they were a little unfriendly after a while weren't they? they? They got a little, yeah. So anyway, but, but birds, they're, they're delicate creatures. They're, they're vulnerable, and yet the psalmist, he sees in the bird that flies around looking for a place to live, he sees in the bird a reflection of himself, and, and he finds refuge. He finds shelter. He finds protection in the Lord, much like this bird found, found protection in my mailbox. But that, that is, that, this is who the Lord is. He's a shield, Never mind the fact that throughout the law, the temple is described as a place of safety where someone who is on, on the run for his life can flee to and not be afraid. This is, this, is, this is the presence of the Lord. And finally, the presence of the Lord, he bestows favor and honor on, on those who are his. And it's not something to grab at just for ourselves. Oh, favor, I've got it. Yeah, favor. But no, the beauty of it is that the Lord graciously gives it to his people. Favor and honor, grace and glory. These are the gifts that he bestows on those who are welcome house guests in his dwelling. And these are the gifts that he bestows on those who are his. Joy and refuge, favor, honor. So why don't, why don't you long for his presence is, is really the best question we could ask. What is it that outweighs the presence of the Lord for you? Could it, could it be that the presence of the Lord is seen as less glorious and less worthy of your time and less worthy of your travel because there are other gods and there are other idols that, that seem far more valuable to you? Don't be foolish. The Lord is, he is the joy of his people. He's the refuge for them by him that we receive favor and honor. And, and no thing, no person, no place, no circumstance that you may long for can provide any of those things. None of them can. Maybe, maybe temporarily, but not, not, not in a lasting way. Maybe, maybe you would say, oh, no, my idol, my idol is better. It's more satisfying. But yet, verse 10, the psalmist says that one day in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand in any other place. It's better than a thousand in front of the TV. It's better than a thousand watching horrible things unfold. It's better than, it's better than a thousand in front of a mirror. The, one day, one day is better. Maybe, maybe you... Maybe you, like many of us, are legalistic, and so you would say that 
I can't enjoy the presence of the Lord until I have secured it for myself. And I really want to answer that a lot more directly towards the end, but, but I do want to ask this question in the meantime. Can you buy the presence of the Lord? Is there anything you can do to secure it for yourself? What arrogance. What foolishness. Even King Solomon in all of his glory and the glory of the temple that he spent millions to, to, to build, even he knew that no gold building could contain the Lord and, and, and no amount of money or no amount of fine materials could, could secure his presence in that building. Maybe you've just forgotten and, and you sit here and, and you hear about the joy and the refuge and the favor and honor of being in the Lord's presence and, and is the Lord really that good? Let me assure you that yes, he is. He is. Second, there, there is the blessing of seeking and traveling to the Lord's presence. The psalmist describes a scenario of the person who is making a pilgrimage to the temple. Um, what's, so, what's, so, what's such a blessing about not even being in the presence of the Lord, but, but making your way there? What's the blessing of that? It's, it, how is that a joyful experience? And, and keep in mind, they didn't have airplanes, although I guess that doesn't really help my case. Um, they, they, they didn't have cars. They didn't have anything that would make their experience any easier or less burdensome. They, I guess they, you know, filled up the camel and took off. And that's a long journey. Never mind that you're doing it on foot. Right? So, what is so wonderful about this pilgrimage, about this move, about this longing for the presence of the Lord is that you're strengthened by the Lord as you go. I'll show you what I mean. The, the psalmist says in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Those who can, who can confide, who can take refuge in you and who can, who can literally go under your protection and provision and certainly with your lifting them up, raising them up for the, for the cause. The Lord is the one who goes with his people, even to the temple. And, and so the psalmist is able to say that in his heart are highways. His heart longs to be where the Lord is, such that his heart itself is, it's, it's like looking at a map of all the ways you can find yourself in the presence of the Lord does lend itself to, to wondering how we ourselves can pave highways in our own hearts. And surely there are many ways. But as I think about it, through, through prayer, speaking to the Lord and making requests and being bold before him, but also being humble to receive what he would give, and, and through studying his word, it's through his words to us that we're able to communicate with him clearly, remember? And so... So seeking him through his word. We also kindle our hearts longing through, through, through community, through the fellowship of believers. Being surrounded by those who also long for the presence of the Lord. That's critical. But build highways. Second, this, this journey, this pilgrimage to the Lord, it's, it's characterized by making it a, by making springs. He says in verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, which is, we're not, no one really knows where it is or really even what it is, but the, the way it's written, it suggests that, that it's a place of dryness, uh, a place like a desert, like a wasteland. And, and so the psalmist says that those who, 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 who's, in whose hearts are the highways to the Lord's presence, these people, as they go, they, they transform the world around them. That's a, it's a small transformation. They make, they, they make springs appear in a desert, and yet this is, this is what characterizes them. It reminds me in 2 Corinthians 2.14 how the Christians are, are they're, they, they're known throughout the world as those who spread the aroma of Christ 
to the world and, and to believers and to non-believers. But in addition to actually making springs, it is the Lord who himself, he brings the early rain. And, and he says this, he says in verse 6, they, the early rain also covers the valley with pools. Well, no person can make it rain. Uh, but the Lord does. And so there, there, there's a twofold characterization then of the pilgrim on his way to the Lord's presence, the one who is seeking the Lord's presence, is that along the way he leaves traces of this joy and this longing for the Lord in the world around him. But then at the same time, the Lord is so gracious to strengthen him on the path and also to provide rain, which he himself cannot do, but the Lord can. And so the Lord, he brings blessing with the person who is seeking his presence not to bless that person necessarily, and maybe not even to bring blessing in the way that we might expect through bank accounts or, or, or houses or this or that. But the Lord, he's faithful to his people. And, and, and he will, will bless the world through them. And, and finally, ultimately through his son. And then, and, then, and I've said this, we're strengthened by the Lord. And, and so if, if, you are, if you are feeling weak, if you are weary, if seeking the Lord's presence is not something that you can really do with an earnest, genuine heart, I encourage you, one, to listen to Wayne's sermon from last week. It's very helpful toward that end. But also go with the encouragement, and it's a very deep encouragement that the Lord, he, he strengthens his people and that they go from strength to strength. Just when they think they're, they're, they're done, they're spent, they're worn out. Just when there's not another drop of water. It's the Lord who provides them with the energy and the fuel they need to continue on. Be encouraged by that. Don't panic because you yourself can't produce water. The Lord does. So why won't you make the pilgrimage? Why won't you seek the Lord's presence? We've, we've looked a little bit about why we don't maybe necessarily feel like it's even a worthy pursuit, but why won't you do it? Why won't you, why won't you move toward him? Could it perhaps be that, that in your own sense of license to do as you please, you might be saying to yourself or to me, one day I'll go there, but, but, but first I have a few things to attend to. Surely that, that pathway, that highway is always open, and I can always make that trip, and I can always seek the Lord's presence, but that will come at another time. In the meantime, I would much rather enjoy being here at home where I have free reign in the place, where I don't have to wear my seatbelt, and where I can just sit. Don't let that be your reason. Don't let that be your reason. Maybe, perhaps, you struggle with fear and weakness, and you would say that you hate travel, that it's dangerous, it's perilous. You could get in a wreck, your plane could crash. I'm not doing that. I don't want to lose anything on the way. And for me, to go and seek the Lord's presence is to make a sacrifice too dear for my heart. Be encouraged. Don't you know, don't you see how gracious the Lord is to his people? Don't you see how gracious and good he is to his people? Philippians 2.12 says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, this is Paul speaking, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't be like the man in the parable who refused to invest his money or to turn a profit on the money that his master gave him, but instead buried it in the ground because he was too afraid of how shrewd his master was. Don't, don't be that person. The Lord himself, he supplies you with all you need for this journey, for seeking him and for doing it in a way that, that will be fruitful and faithful. It's the Lord who does this work. And Finally, I want to look at the blessing of trusting in the Lord's presence. Being there in the Lord's presence is of infinite, infinite value. 
the psalmist says that one day there is better than a thousand anywhere else. And I don't think he literally meant 1,000. He just meant it, it is better than any large number you can come up with. He even goes so far as to describe being a temple, or excuse me, being a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord as being better than dwelling in the tents of wickedness. And, and this, is, this is pretty important. Being a doorkeeper is not an honorable thing. It's a very humble job. You're standing on the threshold of, of the building making sure you know, that, that the door is kept, right? That's what doorkeepers do. And, and yet, he sees the tents of wickedness. And, and he can't even imagine making that decision. A doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, just being in his presence, even as one of his servants in his house, is far greater than dwelling in the tents of wickedness, which are not permanent, very temporary, very fleeting, and very flimsy. And yet, we're not doorkeepers in the Lord's presence. That's not, that's not the position he puts us in. It's a humbling experience. There's, there's no question. But the Lord welcomes us as guests in his home. So why do you prefer the tense of wickedness? Jeremiah 5.25 reverses the language used in, uh, in verse 11 here where he says, No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. Jeremiah 5.25, he inverts it and he says, Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. Don't fall prey to the myth that the tents of wickedness are somehow more pleasurable, more, more affordable, more desirable than the presence of the Lord. If anything, it is the opposite. And whereas the Lord would mean good for his people, the tents of wickedness, they offer far from that. The world's tent, according to this psalmist, is little more than a squatter settlement on the outskirts of of the glory of God. And, and in fact, as all squatter, squatter settlements exist, it is simply by the grace of the one who allows it to even be there. Wouldn't you much rather be in the presence of the Lord, which is permanent, which is lasting, and which is ultimately the greatest blessing? The Lord's dwelling is a sun and a shield. He brings life new life to his people, and he also protects them and shields them and envelops them with his grace. The Lord's presence, and in the Lord's presence, he bestows favor and honor, grace, glory. He doesn't withhold anything good from his people. And yet the psalmist, he ends, he ends his psalm in verse 12 by saying that the one who trusts in the Lord, is, is, he is blessed. He began it by talking about actually being in the presence of the Lord at the temple, and yet here he ends with the one who by faith trusts in the Lord's goodness and presence, that is the person who finds himself there. Because God's presence is greater than wickedness, and his presence necessarily then means walking uprightly in accordance with it. And yet it is all by faith, as we live trusting that the Lord is much greater as we live and we abide by his, his commands and we abide by scripture and we, we follow him, these commands are suddenly a joy because what they bring is not drudgery and mundane living or some sort of shackle on your world, but they actually bring the true joy and refuge of the presence of God. How wonderful is that? And what's even more wonderful, and this is where I want to end, is that all of this, all of these blessings are ultimately secured by Christ himself. I asked the question earlier, are you falling into some sort of legalism whereby you think that you can secure this on your own? And the answer to that is no, you cannot, but it is secured by Jesus. He is the one who brings us into the presence of God. The psalmist, he, he makes a statement in here in verses 8 and 9. He makes a prayer, and it's, it seems odd because it just shows up in the middle of the psalm, but he prays for the king of Israel. And he asks God to bless this king. See, the, the king himself, his, one of his roles, and this is why Saul was such a poor king and why David was such a great one, why Solomon 
uh, to some degree was also a great one, is because the king, one of his roles is, is to provide safe passage. He is the one who secures and makes sure that the, that the temple is there, that the people are able to safely arrive there. And, and furthermore, as the king goes, so goes the people. And so if you yourself are not able to be at the temple, the best, the best thing that you can find is that the king is on your behalf. And so he prays for the king that this would be the case, that the king, that the Lord would behold the king. But ultimately, he refers to God as an even greater king. And so God's kingship and sovereign rule are made far more prominent. God is very clearly referred to as the greater king. Obviously, Zion, God's mountain throne, that's, that's the definition of grandeur. And then call to behold Israel. God himself, the psalmist, asks him to behold Israel's king. I, I, that, that, is, that is condescension, that the Lord would even look on, on an earthly king. The Lord is described as a son and, more importantly, as a shield. And a shield is a very clear metaphor for the protection of not just any person, but of the king. He calls the king his shield. And then later in verse 11, he calls the Lord his shield. And then finally, the Lord bestows favor and honor, not just on all the people, but especially on the king. Who is greater, the, the king or the king who blesses the king? And so the Lord is shown to be the great king, but, but we know that, that Christ himself is the king of kings. Christ is the sovereign, ruling presence of God made known to his people. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ the fullness of deity dwells. That's another way of saying that Jesus is fully God and has all the rights and privileges of being such. And so as the psalmist relies on God, his great king, what he is really looking forward to is, is, is Christ in all of his kingly glory. Christ, we see, he is in the presence of the Lord. Titus 3, 4 refers to, it refers to the loving kindness of the Lord in Christ. And I want to examine this really quick. Titus 3, 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that word loving kindness that you saw there uh, is a word that is in Hebrew and then translated into English in, in that Psalm 84. Christ is associated with the loving kindness of the Lord. And this is because Christ is, he is in the Lord's presence. Hebrews 1.3 says that he sits at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for his people that's according to Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. Christ does intercede, which can only be done if you have access to God. But Christ is not only in the Lord's presence in one sense, he actually is the presence of the Lord. See, when, when the psalmist was going to the temple, when the people of God in ancient Israel longed for the temple, what they longed for was, yes, the presence of the Lord, but, but it was only a taste. They couldn't even get into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence physically manifested itself. But yet, this was where they could be, and this is where they felt the presence of the Lord. That's where they went. But, but through Jesus, we not only know of the presence of the Lord, we actually know the presence of the Lord. John 1, 1 through 14, is very clear about this, and, and I want to read it quickly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this is talking about Jesus, the Word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we go on to verse, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. That word for dwelt is the same word that God refers to over and over again in the Old Testament uh, as of, of his tabernacle. And, and, and in John, he's literally saying, Jesus tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling, his tent among us, just like God did in the Old Testament. But it is far more superior. It is far more real. And it's far more approachable. You may say to yourself, oh, no, no, Robert, you're making a very exclusive claim that Christ is the only way to the Lord, that Christ is the presence of God. That would have to necessarily mean that no one else, nothing else is the presence of God. But, Robert, I, I beg to differ. I, I, have found, I have found God's presence in X, whatever that may be. But there is no one else. There is no other place. There's no other person. There's, there's no circumstance. There's no state of mind. There is, there is nothing that can bring us into the presence of the Lord like Jesus Christ himself does and is. Jesus is, he is also the strength that we need to, to make it there. He's not only the presence of the Lord, but, but he is the grace that supplies our, our walk. Romans 1, 16 through 18 says that Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the power of God. And Titus 2, 11 through 14 says this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared in Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's not just the grace of God that saves us. It's the grace of God that even brings us to a point where we can know him. It's the grace of God that, that, that trains us to renounce ungodliness. It's the grace of God in Christ that, that teaches us what it means to long for Jesus' return by faith, just like the psalmist is saying. Which brings me to my final point, that the promise of God is made known and shown to be better, and it all hinges on Christ himself. And so then the believing church, he, they, we as the church, we in another sense, we represent God and, and show his presence to the world around us. And, and likewise, we long for the return of God. Literally, the, the real God himself being here in a new heaven and a new earth. We see that in Revelation 21. It very clearly talks about the Lord descending and actually Christ himself being the temple. And God being among us and being the sun and being the light for a city that needs no street lamps. This is Christ and it's found in him. Finally, Philippians 3, 12 through 21 says this. As I'm reading this, if the men who, and women who are on the praise team, if they could come forward and we'll sing a few songs. But I want to read this, this scripture so come up as I'm reading. Philippians 3.12 says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me, my, made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything... If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject 
all things to himself. I want to tell you a story. Um, in, in Genesis, I, I early referred to the history of the temple, and, and it was only impartial. In Genesis, we, this is the first place where God actually makes his dwelling among his people. He creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day, as you probably have heard, he takes a rest, right? And you've been told through Sunday school, probably as a child, or, or maybe now as you've thought, hey, that doesn't make sense. The Lord didn't, he didn't need a break. He wasn't exhausted by any means. But the Lord takes a rest. And, and in one sense, yes, it's exemplary for us that we would take a rest on the seventh day. But when it says that he takes a rest, it invokes much more the imagery of a man who moves into his house and he puts all his furniture in various places. And he sets up his kitchen and he puts all the things where they need to go. Or maybe his wife did that, I, I don't know. But this, this man, he walks into his house and he moves in, he sets up shop. And when he's all done, and, and the first thing anybody does who's moved, you don't, you don't then leave and, and run and buy more furniture or do other things or go out to dinner or a party or something like that. No, instead, after a long day of working and setting up your house, the first thing you do is you find your couch, you kick up your feet, and you rest. And this is what we see in the creation account. is not an exhausted God, but one who has set up his dwelling. And he rests. And he rests with his people. The account refers to uh, uh, the Lord walking among Adam and Eve, and, and they were able to recognize the sound of his feet as they walked through the, the garden. But that, of course, fell apart. Which is why the Lord had to set up a tabernacle and so on where his people couldn't have direct access to him, but instead he would just dwell among them, not literally face to face. And instead, Adam and Eve fell into sin, to the tense of wickedness, where they chose other things beside the Lord, where they would rather disobey him directly or maybe just indirectly by ignoring his commands altogether. And, and instead, they found themselves on the outskirts of Eden with an angel in front of the gate blocking the way, no more access to the presence of the Lord. But what is so beautiful about this is that you see this imagery come up another time in the Gospels. When Jesus is resurrected, as you recall, he, he had been buried in a garden. And as some women come back and they find Jesus, they find Jesus there, but they don't know who he is. In fact, they mistake him for the gardener. And, and the beauty of it all is that it is through Christ that that the presence of God has been restored to fallen humanity. He was there in Eden, and he is also there at his resurrection. He's the reigning king of creation, and the one to whom we turn to find the presence of the Lord himself. So let's, let's pray. Father, you have given us Jesus you have made yourself known to us. You have made your dwelling among us. You entered history physically as a human being, fully God and fully man, fully real. And you invite us to return to the presence of the Lord only through him, because it can only be done through him as, as only Christ makes the sacrifice necessary to atone for our sin. He is the one who, tear, who tears down the gate of Eden. He's the one that, that through him we have access to you again. And so I ask that you would turn our hearts for those who believe and trust, that you, would, that you would loosen our grip from the other things that we would prefer to your presence and that you would turn our hearts in repentance to love you through Christ. And Father, for those who do not know you, I pray that in your grace, you would supply what they need to make that move toward you. It's a joyful thing to be found seeking the Lord's presence. 
pray that we would seek you together this morning and as we go about our week and our lives, draw us into the presence by Jesus himself. And I ask that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.